Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, as a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Pete? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, today we have an episode for you on a topic that will be relevant to all of our listeners, but in particular, our young listeners, people that are still in their training. And our topic here is how to pick a fellowship. Now, fellowship is often described as the best year ever. Certainly for me, it was one of the highest impact years when I learned the most. When it comes to training, it's a critical topic for trainees to figure out how do you pick the best fellowship. And many of our seasoned listeners are fellowship faculty. It's important for them to know what are today's applicants looking for. And it's probably a little bit different in 2023 than it was 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So we've invited um, a couple of guests, two fellowship directors, one current fellow. So first we have Dr. Michael Amini, who's the chief of the shoulder division of the course in, in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the uh, invitation. Next, we have Dr. Andy Jensen, shoulder and elbow surgeon at UCLA in California. Andy, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, and then finally, we have Dr. Ryan Hill, who's currently a shoulder and will fellow at WashU in St. Louis. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to be here. All right. Well, thank you all for joining. Let's get started with what everyone wants to know. As an applicant, what do you look for when applying to fellowship? Ryan, let's start with you. Well, I think, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of different criteria that, that we can go over. I think the probably the most important thing to start is that fellowship is a, a different decision than a lot of the decisions that have been made along the path that, that everybody who's listening to this podcast is on. Um, and I think it's different in the sense that it really needs to be tailored to um, the applicant themselves, being honest, being introspective and kind of knowing uh, who they are as an adult learner and what their goals are. Um, and that may not necessarily mean the the fellowship that's the most, uh, has the biggest name or the most highly acclaimed. Um, it may be, it may not be. So I think the, the biggest criterion that I would recommend is that uh, people really have to be honest with themselves and where they think they're going to get the best training for their way of learning and for their future career. Um, and one of the, one of the really important things with that is the people, uh, in that fellowship, uh, where they would potentially be going, you know, you hear people talk about, you can do anything for a year, which, uh, is true, but, uh, fellowship is really the, only the first, uh, in kind of, uh, building a foundation for a very long-term relationship, uh, with mentors who will continue to influence your career trajectory um, and who, especially in your first years out of fellowship, will be people that you can reach out to for advice and for things like that. Um, and I think that also goes with, you know, kind of having it be somewhat a fit for each individual person because different fellowships have different cultures and, um, you know, different ways of doing things that may or may not be the best fit for any given applicant. I'm sure we'll get into some of the other more uh, objective criteria, but I think that that's uh, an important thing to start with. Let's flip the script a little bit. So Michael and Andy, what do you guys look at in terms of the types of fellows you hope to recruit? What it, what are you looking for on the other side of things? Let's start with Michael first. Yeah, so I think, I think you know, each program has has a very unique culture, a very unique 
sort of flavor um, in terms of not just the, the personalities that make up the faculty for that program, but also the, the things that you're going to see, what your year is structured like. Um, is it a very one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two -on -two kind of mentality, or is it, you know, you're working with 10 different faculty members and, you know, just it, it really, every program is very unique in that regard. And so it's very, very much about the personal fit both with the personalities in some sense because it's a much more intimate relationship than it is in residency you know it's we have two hands and upper extremity fellows here with us and granted we've got maybe a dozen faculty members but nonetheless um it's much more intimate than having 20 or 40 or 50 residents around uh and, and you work a lot more closely with them it's at a higher level of education higher level of discussion um there are people that you know to ryan's point you talk to for years afterwards when they get on to practice and, and tell them about, you know, they, they ask you about what you would do. And sometimes you ask them what they would do when they get far enough out that you want to know their opinion. Um, so it's the fit of the personalities, but also the fit of what they want to see. And in some sense, it's a very honest question and a very honest answer for most people. What are you looking for in a fellowship? And if they tell you, and it's not really the flavor of the program, you, you kindly tell them, well, this is the flavor of the program, and, you know, maybe this isn't kind of the right thing for you, and that's okay. You know, it's, it's not like residency where everybody's just sort of just looking for a spot. Now, granted, you want the best spot, but um, it's, it's much more personal, much more intimate, much more like, I want this. Is this the right fit for me, uh, for my education, and for the people I'm going to be with for a year? Andy, let me ask you, when, when you're looking at applicants, in addition to what Michael just mentioned, when, you know, you have a, you have a lot of applicants, few spots, so you have to narrow it down somewhere. When you're, when you're looking for that right fit, are you looking at letters of rec? Are you doing, you know, what I tend to do during interviews or before interviews is I'll text or call people I know from the program, the residents from, are you looking more for that word of mouth? Because everyone has a good letter of rec. And, and while some are better than others, there's no bad letter of rec, right? There's just mm -hmm. yeah. there's excellent ones. And then there's the other ones, but nothing terrible. Um, so, so what are you looking for specifically out of that applicant to say they're the right fit for your program? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. Uh, uh, getting a sense of people's personalities, I think is really important just to kind of echo what Michael and Ryan have both said. You know, I work with our our PGY4 residents uh, quite extensively here at UCLA, and I'm always telling them, um, you know, where, whichever fellowship you go to, you're going to be really well trained when you're done. You're going to be able to be a, a excellent uh, uh, shoulder knuckle surgeon, sports surgeon. Um, but it's mostly about fit, and that, I think that's a tough thing to hear sometimes because we're all um, try to be generally pretty objective people and, and type A and, and, and don't want to necessarily just like go with that gut, gut quote unquote, but ultimately I think that that's the best advice is to apply broadly, see a lot of these places, meet a lot of, you know, if, if you're an applicant, meet a lot of the faculty, if you're a faculty, meet all the applicants and ultimately go with what feels, feels right. Now, um, I think one of the things that applicants should know is what are the what are the things you really should look out for. So what are the what are the red flags you may see or you hear on the trail or things that you may um, you know things things you may observe on the interview day. And then what are some real like gold star like if you see this like that's a really good thing. What do you what do you think, Ryan? What are some things that fall into kind of the extremes, good bad? Um, I think. Uh, some of the, I guess, starting with the, the bad is, 
you want to have a, a comprehensive training experience. And um, I think some of the things that can detract from that are any sense that there are large periods of the year where you go without doing essential skills. Now, obviously, every, every fellowship is going to have a different uh, profile of the types of cases that you get. Um, and some are very, very strong in certain things and maybe not so strong in other things. But I think if there's any program where you're going to go without basic experience or basic skills for uh, either your overall experience for the entire year or periods of months at a time where you're not doing something, uh, you know, as an, as an adult learner learning a complex skill, that repetition is important. So I think any, any sort of experience like that, um, it's good to get a sense too of what the dynamic is with the faculty themselves, what they're letting the fellows do, uh, how often the fellows are doing cases with residents. Cause I think that it's easy to kind of get fixated on a case number, but that number uh, means a lot different things at different programs, uh, depending on what that actual experience is. Um, so I think those are two things to pay attention to. Um, in terms of gold star things, I guess you could say kind of the, the flip side of those those types of things. But I think the, the gold star things are things that talking to the current fellows can be helpful for, uh, because that's when you really find out what, what the true experience is like. Um, but I think having the opportunity to, uh, do some sort of autonomous, um, activities as a fellow is important, whether that's taking call, uh, that could be even just general trauma call or in your shoulder elbow experiences. Um, I think that that's very important, um, and getting that before you get out into the world. Um, I think the relationship between the faculty members and the faculty members and the fellows um, that they are mentors and supportive and that there's a good relationship there. Um, you don't have to love all the people that teach you, but if you're choosing to spend a year somewhere, um, you want to have a good experience and that's only going to augment your learning. Um, and I think that, you know, if there are opportunities for uh, proactive learning like a cadaver lab or other things like that, those can, those aren't necessarily like, you know, a, one of the maybe focal points or essential things, but those can really augment uh, all of the learning that you're doing clinically and really help you hone in on some of the things that either you don't see as much or that you may not feel as comfortable with or feel like you need more work on. What do you think, uh, Michael? Any anything else you'd add? Any other red flags, gold star kind of things when you think about fellowships or as you advise residents that work with you? Yeah, I think um, you know it's you, you spend five years working very hard, very long hours, trying to learn, trying to take care of patients, trying to develop skills. And when it came to education, when it came to fellowship, I really, really wanted it to be about the education meaning that there were some programs that the fellows were almost used to a resident level of work, if, if that makes sense, you know, to use an old phrase, right, they were scut monkeys. And, and that was very much a big turnoff for me, even if it was a good education. Otherwise, I, I wanted to spend my time learning as much as I could in a very, very short year in a complex field, right? I mean, everything we subspecialize in is, is far more complex than you ever realize before you get into it. And so it's a very finite amount of time. And I didn't want to be there filling out FMLA paperwork two hours after my attending went home from clinic at 7 p.m. and I go home at 9 
that just wasn't the kind of place that I wanted to be. I still was busy in my fellowship. I, I did my shoulder elbow fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic, and, and we it's not like we had easy hours or anything like that, but my time was very educationally based. It, you know, it was, there were conferences, there were clinics, there was, you know, operating days of my attendings, and it, I wasn't there to move their practice along, if that makes sense. I was there to learn from my education. Um, and so that that big principle, I think, has really resonated even with how we sort of treat our fellows here. Like my practice runs with or without my fellows present. Um, in fact, they're really only with me a handful of months of the year. So uh, the other two-thirds of the year, then I'm fellowless. So I, I wanted a program like that. That's kind of how I want my time with my fellows to be now. Um, and that was really important to me. And then the, the rest of it really came down to um, the things that I wanted to see. I really wanted to focus on shoulder arthroplasty, not just that, but but that's where I really wanted to really sort of, if I ever had to say, this is the one thing I'm going to do forever, that that was it. And my program was was much sort of heavier than that. Um, and, and I was really thrilled with the people I was able to train with in that regard. And I still got a good education broadly in shoulder and elbow, but um, I really sought out what I was looking for in that regard from a clinical perspective, what I wanted to do long term. What about you, Indy? Anything else to add? Yeah, I'd say one of the pieces of advice I give uh, to our fours is to look, is to prioritize complexity over volume. You know, you're going to get, when you're out in practice, uh, uh, many, many reps are doing a primary cuff or a primary shoulder arthroplasty, for instance, but you might not see, you know, big time AT, you know, revisions, APCs, uh, different scapula stuff, tendon transfers. Even if you don't want that as part of your practice long term, I think seeing that in fellowship is being done by a you know a world leader, uh, sort of an expert in that field is uh, really invaluable. So I would say a, to phrase it to your question, Peter, what would be a red flag? I would say uh, uh, maybe not seeing uh, like a high level of complexity would be uh, for me at least. I'd recommend that. Yeah, that'd be a program you might want to stay away from. Peter, can I add one more thing? Sorry, I, I totally agree with what Michael and Andy said. I think those are great points. One one additional thing that I thought of, which I think has changed a little bit with some of the new fellowship regulations, is is clinic exposure. It's the thing that nobody gets excited about. Uh, but there, I think in the past there were certain fellowships that did not give you much clinic exposure and. Again, it's not the thing that everybody, like everybody wants to go to their shoulder fellowship to learn how to do uh, complex cases. But um, Peter, you, you gave me this advice at one point that, you know, your, your clinic is really the bedrock and the foundation of your entire practice. Um, and you could be a technically skilled surgeon, but if you're indicating the wrong patients for the wrong procedures, um, you know, that's obviously not a great thing. And um, I think that Shoulder is complicated and it can be really challenging to figure out which patients need surgery, which don't. And then even in the post-op period, you know, what, what should a cuff look like at two, four weeks from surgery? And you're only going to learn that in clinic. Um, so I think that any, anything that would be a red flag is any experience that indicates that your clinic exposure is kind of either kicked to the wayside or, or not as present as it should be. Guy, you made so many great points there about balancing clinic and the OR and the relationships and 
Okay, I really am glad we guys had you guys on to talk about this. One question I wanted to ask is about the balance between complexity and volume. And is there a point at which, you know, even if the cases are complicated enough, you're not doing enough of them? So if you went to a fellowship and they were to say, oh, you know, we did 100 cases this year, is that a red flag? How do you balance those two things in deciding what what you would want to do in terms of which fellowship you want to go to? Yeah, certainly. I mean, something like an outlier like that would be uh, uh, concerning for sure. But um, one of the panelists, Michael Ryan, already said this, I think, but so the quality of the case, I, I always think is more important than strictly the volume number. So if it's, you know, 300, 350, 400, you know, as the most important thing is the quality of the case. And, you know, you don't want to be double scrubbing. Um, you want to be with someone who's, who's actively teaching, um, uh, who's sort of, you know, a dedicated teacher who wants you to kind of graduate autonomy, eventually take, take over the, uh, kind of the role of the lead, lead surgeon. So, um, uh, yes, there are probably some outliers, but in my sense is that none of the fellowships that are up there <clears throat> have that lower numbers. It's more about the quality of the reps, I think. It's funny you guys mentioned this in terms of the clinic experience, because that's never, you know, as, as you mentioned, Ryan, right away, that's that's never the most exciting part. That's not, you don't want to go on an interview and be like, you know, this clinic is awesome. I'm so excited to come here. But when I, when I think back to my fellowship and I, I did sports, but with a heavy shoulder exposure, the clinic part is probably what helped me the most in my first year, but that was also complemented by the reps. So the high volume also made it more familiar in that first year to do cases, and it wasn't a case the first time. I will tell you, and in, in, as I, I help with our fellowship from a, you know, from a training perspective, the feedback I get, and maybe the fellows just don't like the OR, but they, the, the comments we get are that the clinic is, um, for, for their experience with me, one of the best they have all year. And simply due to the fact that it's so busy, we see so many patients, they're actively involved in the decision-making and they see the pre-op, they see the immediate post-op, and then they see the two or three-month follow-up. And then when they rotate back on, they get to see six and eight and nine-month follow-up. And it's important, especially for our young listeners out there to understand, you, you need to know what a cuff should look like at four weeks and at eight weeks. And you need to know when you might need to consider an injection or taking them back to the OR you need to know um, more more of the complications than anything else, and that really only comes from a clinic. So I would I would echo that uh, for our young listeners out there. Pay pay attention to the clinic exposure in addition to the reps. One thing I want to ask you guys, and this often brings up a visceral response, especially amongst our more seasoned listeners and and people who have been in the field for 10, 20 years, et cetera. But the role of social media in picking a fellowship program. Here in 2022, 2023, it's huge for med schools, for residencies, for fellowships. It's how, especially in the era of COVID with virtual interviews and, and virtual exposures to programs, they really get a taste for the program, be it accurate or not accurate, via social media. So, so Ryan, tell us, did that have anything, did social media and, and what programs put online have anything to do with you selecting your fellowship? And how would you advise applicants to look at this moving forward? Um, I'm probably not the most helpful person to answer that question. I'm a little bit more of an old soul. I'm, I'm not really very active on social media other than passive, um, interpretation of, of information. I, I did not really use it at all for my fellowship application. I was involved in some of the stuff that we were doing, uh, for my residency program when I was a resident, 
Um, I, I don't even know how aware I am of how much different shoulder programs are using it to promote their fellowships. I think, I think it's, it's a way to become familiar with it, but I, I wouldn't use it as a primary source of information or anything to, uh, like hang your decision on. Um, but I think it is, you know, it can give you a more of the softer side of things of maybe a little bit of a sense of what the personality of the faculty or the personality of the program might be like. Michael, what are your thoughts when you think about, you know, putting out things on social media, be it about your practice or the fellowship in general, is that something you're actively doing? Do you have a system for that? And do you think it, it helps influence the type of applicants you're getting and ultimately matching when you, when you think about your fellowship program? Yeah, you know, when, I, when I'm present on social media from a professional standpoint, um, it's not really necessarily about the fellowship. Uh, it's really just about sort of engaging the professional community. And so um, for whatever sort of comes about that secondarily is just sort of whatever happens in, in that regard. It's not necessarily to promote the fellowship. Um, I think fellowship at least my sense is that social media for fellowship is a little harder to do because it's so much smaller, right? The, every We go from orthopedics, which is, I don't know, whatever the number is now, maybe a thousand residents a year, um, down to every subspecialty, which is between, you know, 50 and 200 people a year in sports or, you know, in my, in my case, shoulder and elbow. It's a very small field. And so it's kind of hard to like have enough engagement out there and enough people who are even looking Right. There's 50 applicants or so for your shoulder and elbow. You know, that's not many, um, not many viewers uh, to really put out a ton of effort on social media. So I don't know that it'll be as important as it seems to be becoming for residency. It seems to be becoming a bigger thing to try to show off what the culture of your residency is like. But it's because there's more to show off. Right. Programs are a whole lot bigger than, than fellowship programs. Um, and the audience is also much larger. Right. You have hundreds and hundreds of people looking as opposed to 50 or a hundred or 200. Andy, any additional thoughts? Do you, do you think if a program does not have a social media presence? And again, we're talking 2023 and maybe five years ago, different story. Do you think that that's a turnoff to today's applicant and think about the medical students and residents that you work with and not just, you know, the shoulder and elbow surgeons that you work with. Do you think social media is something that programs need to utilize to attract top candidates or do you think not so much in word of mouth is you know and mentors telling telling their residents this is where you got to apply this is the best fit for you etc what do you what do you think about it with the caveat that i actually don't use social media myself so i'm, I'm kind of an old soul too just like ryan but um i i i don't think uh um it would be the best way you know i wouldn't counsel a resident to put much much stake into you know, the, the website of a program or the social media output of a program, I think word of mouth and, and going to see the place themselves if, if they can, or at least, you know, resume interviews um, are definitely going to give you a better kind of sense of the place. All right. Now, earlier you guys really mentioned how important relationships are. We've heard discussion of how important complexity is. You know, certainly one of the ways you get to that is you could work with someone who's like super famous or amazing. So I certainly one of my questions here is, I mean, what what are your guys' thoughts on that? If you if you're an applicant and you're just like one specific person, you were like this person I'm obsessed with and I, I really want to work with this program, should 
person? Should you try for that program? I mean, what if that person leaves? What if that person you don't click with because they're one single person? Like, do you do you think that's a good way to pick a program? Is that a bad way to pick a program? What do, what do you think, Ryan? I think that can certainly be a factor. Um, it should. I don't think it should be the one deciding factor, uh, but it, it can be depending on the person and depending on the the interest. It could be you know one of the main factors. I think the taking a step back from that would be again kind of being honest and introspective is why like why do you want to work with that person is it just because they're famous because if that's the reason then that's probably not a good reason but if the reason is they do x y and z cases and i am incredibly interested in those i'm going to be doing those in my practice i want to do research on those things um then yeah maybe that is a reason um and i think that like you um, kind of implied getting a sense of if that person's going anywhere, if they're stable in the job that they're in is a smart thing to do as an insurance policy. Um, but I, I don't think it's unreasonable to have that be a driving factor uh, just with kind of some self-honesty and with some precautions. Certainly, I think you and I both, you know, made our decision to work with the world famous Jay Keener. And I, I don't feel bad about that decision. So I can see it being a positive, but it can be a risk. I mean, I also went to work with a Doug world-famous Dr. Lisa Gallatin, she promptly left for Mount Sinai. So it's it can be a risk. It, it cuts both ways. What do you think, Andy? Do you think this is a good way to make the decision, a bad way? Yeah, I think that's a big thing to consider. Going to a fellowship for one specific person is just, you know, because of the way our fellowship application and then where it starts is laid out, you know, it's a year and a half later. It is a big risk. Um, so, you know, in general, all things being equal, I think it's probably better to go somewhere that has multiple mentors that you could see yourself clicking with. Um, that being said, in the situation like what Ryan laid out, I think that would be, you know, totally reasonable, worthwhile uh, endeavor to pursue. What are your thoughts, Michael? Is this reasonable, unreasonable way to make the decision? I I, I love the bait you're throwing out because I'm 100% with you on this. I think, you know, the the having variety in the faculty. I mean, it's almost like going to play college basketball because of the coach right and there's musical chairs all the time people are moving and you go there and then all of a sudden you're left you know thinking like do i still want to be here so i, I that was really really important for me when i was looking at fellowship programs was variety of faculty not just like the sheer number but but also just variety amongst the things people did and, and what they where they trained where they came from um what was really important to me, maybe even among the top one or two things that I was looking at, aside from like the things that they actually did, you know, the, the actual education that I would get there. But that was that was a very, very important thing for me when I was looking at programs. If it was just a one-on-one 12 month relationship, even if I really thought highly of that person, it was, it was a bit of a turnoff for this exact reason. All right, let me ask you guys a somewhat similar question, but also not at all similar. So I'll just put it with that. When you're when applicants are looking at fellowships, one of the things they're often thinking about is jobs, their future job. And so what would you advise the applicant in terms of looking at their fellowship as a job opportunity? If they want to work in the city that that fellowship happens to be in, should they go to that fellowship? Should they go to a different fellowship to avoid potential future competition if they're not going to get hired at the place of, of their current fellowship? 
how would you advise them? Because I think this is a common source of anxiety for fellowship applicants. It's something there's even rumors of programs having quote unquote non-competes when you sign a fellowship contract, which to my understanding is actually not a thing, but correct me if I'm wrong, if you guys actually know of that. A lot of rumors, I haven't heard of anything actually being implemented with that, but it causes a lot of anxiety. And, and a lot of people might want to do a fellowship, say here at the University of Colorado, because they're dead set on working in Denver and Boulder, but sometimes fellowship faculty don't want to train their competition. And so if there's no room to hire a partner, that can be a little bit challenging. So, so what would you say, Michael, let's start with you on that. What are your thoughts on this topic? Yeah, it's so different depending on the environment of where that program is. You know, I think like for us, we've had some fellows. In fact, one of ours is probably going to stay in town, but not with our group um, next year. And but our, our city is also big enough and relatively speaking, still underserved enough, despite how big Phoenix is, um, that it's it's OK. It doesn't give us anxiety to even think about that. Like that's that's good for him. If he's happy here, he wants to stay here. If that works out, great. Um, but in different, you know, cities, it can be much more saturated. And so the thought of having one of your trainees who you just taught all your tricks to, to then go, you know, work a half mile down the road is, is could, could potentially turn them off from even wanting to take you, right? If, if Phoenix was that way where we were super saturated and really heavily competing against each other that way, um, if somebody told me they want to be in Phoenix long term, I could see how I, I would be turned off by that. So, um, I don't know that there is a way to know that without actually finding out. By the time you find out, you've already kind of played your cards. Um, I would almost just stay away from the topic as long as you can help it. Um, I think not wanting to be in that city could not, wouldn't harm you, right? Like if you go, if you, if somebody interviewed with us and said, I don't want to stay in Phoenix, that's, that's never going to hurt them. Right. But potentially that's a little bit of a risk. If you tell a program, I want to go here and actually want to stay here, then there, there is a potential risk there. Andy, what are your thoughts? You know, saturated market in L.A. Um, you, you have the next applicant who's the next superstar that you want to recruit. You want to be part of their training. You'd love to hire them on, but you don't have room for a partner. And, and they tell you, you know, as soon as they match. Awesome. I'm, I'm taking a job, you know, half mile down the road. And I'm going to, I'm going to do everything you do. I'm just going to do it newer and better because I'm younger and, and more trained and blah, blah, blah. What do you, what do you say? Or how do you approach that? Um, also, I'm not, I'm not so sure. I haven't really considered that situation before. Um, I, I mean, my background is I did my residency at UCLA. I kind of had a good sense. I was coming back on, on faculty and I did my fellowship up at Mayo. So it wasn't really a, a, a thing for me. Um, I think I like Michael's advice. I, I would just uh, as an as an applicant, if I was advising that app <clears throat> that applicant you just laid out, I would just say you know maybe um, read the tea leaves, but otherwise keep it to yourself and uh, kind of see how see how it all goes. I do think this non compete thing. I too, Rachel, don't have any like firm evidence of that. I've heard rumors as well. I would maybe suss that out ahead of time, but otherwise um, um, keep everything to yourself. I suppose. Ryan, let me ask you, did this, you know, you're the closest to interviews, even though you did it a couple of years ago. Did this kind of thing come up where people would say, you know, where are you hoping to practice or where do you want to end up, et cetera? And did it ever create a sense of awkwardness in terms of the actual interview? And was it something you looked at when you were applying to fellowships? You know, did you want to 
and I'm not asking you if you want to, I don't know what your job situation, but if you want to practice in St. Louis or what you wanted to do, was this a factor for you in deciding where to apply? I think it's a great question. It's not something that I thought about much as an applicant, and I don't recall getting questions from a location standpoint, um, other than maybe just casual conversation. Um, I, I can see how that could potentially be an issue, although similar to what you said and what Andy said, I, I've heard things about non-competes kind of being done away with kind of in all contexts. So I think that that's maybe less of an issue, but could cause some potential strain with, you know, uh, between a fellow and their fellowship mentors. Um, I think that to me, um, consideration of location in terms of future job is, is maybe something that applicants shouldn't, shouldn't be focusing on too much and shouldn't necessarily, like Andy said, and Michael said, like bringing up in an interview. Um, I think that some of the more important things for future job considerations are just figuring out what type of practice you want to have, what you want to be doing, because that should influence the type of fellowship that you want to go to, not necessarily where it's located. Um, but you have to, you know, you have to be realistic. And some people in their fourth year residency already know where they're going and going to the famous high powered, you know, ivory tower fellowship may not be the best thing for somebody who's going into private practice back in their hometown. So um, I think it's a little bit of a roundabout response to your question, but I think it's something that applicants maybe shouldn't stress too much about. And, and it's probably a better thing like the other guy said to avoid in fellowship conversations, just in case there is an issue on the other side. I love your guys' answers. I mean, this definitely comes up. And so it's, it's something that I think applicants are maybe not aware of until they get into interviews. So it's good to consider ahead of time. Is there a specific geographic location? How do you want to handle that in the interviews? One of the things I want to ask about here is, you know, currently we're doing a match, you know, and there's some real benefits to that, but there's also some downsides from both sides. What do you guys think? Should we continue with the current match program or are there ways in which you think we could improve it um, as compared to it currently exists? What do you think, Andy? Um, well, I think one interesting overall, I think the match, match is, is, is great and equitable. I, one of the interesting changes to the residency match this year um, has been the signaling process, which y'all may be aware of, but essentially, uh, med school, uh, med students can signal 30 residency program up to 30 residency programs, orthopedic residency programs, uh, that says, you know, Hey, I'm particularly interested in, in that program. And uh, the intention of the signaling process is to cut down on the number of interviews, essentially, that each of the uh, applicants end up uh, going toward, you know, because it was getting sort of out of hand where applicants were applying to 80, 100 different programs. Um, and just sort of cutting that down to the ones that are actually uh, uh, interested in. And it was an attempt at making the whole process a little bit more uh, uh, fair and equitable for everyone. Whether that makes its way into the fellowship match, I'm not sure. And I don't know how that would kind of manifest, particularly in the shoulder elbow fellowship match, where it's already such a small uh, field. But it will be interesting to see in, you know, five years or so, if that kind of new process, A, stays, I suppose, in the orthopedic residency match, but then also makes its way into fellowship. What do you think, Mike? I mean, is this, 
is the, the match as it currently stands, you like the process, you don't like the process. How do you think it's going to change in the future? I like it. Um, you know, I, I guess if the alternative was to go back to something where it was, you know, you come interview and we tell a couple people you have 24 hours to <laughs> accept the offer, that's it's hard because then you have you have to uh, sort of hedge your bets. You have to think, well, gosh, there's this other program I'm, I'm not going to interview for for another three weeks. Do I really want to take this offer? What if I don't even get accepted at the other program? So it's it's a it's too open ended for too tight of a system. It's too tight of an employment system where where you really need the numbers to fill themselves out. So um, I think the match could be tweaked with things like signaling, um, depending on the subspecialty and, the, and maybe the size of the subspecialty and the number of programs, number of spots. Um, but I can't imagine going back to truly sort of unmatched unless unless something got so small, like if there were a field that, I don't know, only had 10 spots and 10 people applied, then it might work without a match. But I think the numbers are such that um, it has to be sort of tightly controlled enough to make sure as many people get spots as possible and as many spots get filled as possible. What do you think, Ryan? I mean, you're the one who's most recently been through the process. Did you think it functioned well? Um, do you think there's things, ways we could improve it? Should we have signals? Certainly it's a smaller field, maybe not as necessary, hard to tell. Um, I don't have anything brilliant to add. I think uh, Andy and Mike made good points. Um, I think that I obviously haven't seen it from the other side, but having recently gone through it as an applicant, it, I think it went pretty smoothly. And I, I know that the ASCS and Dr. Levine had uh, made some significant efforts in the past you know, four or five years to try to improve the match process specifically for shoulder and elbow. And I think it functions pretty smoothly. Um, I think part of that process was trying to uh, avoid some of the kind of the backdoor conversations, but those happen regardless. I think that the signaling thing is a nice way for applicants to kind of have, I guess, somewhat of a um, analogous process and be able to indicate interest in kind of a controlled fashion. Uh, but I think overall the match, given the kind of the considerations for how many applicants there are and how the process works, I think is, um, at least for the time being, is a, is a good way of doing it. Let me ask you guys, uh, one popular thing that's really occurring now, and I think I've seen a, an increase in this in the last five years, is applicants pursuing two fellowships, be it sports and shoulder, shoulder and trauma, shoulder and hand, or whatever fellowships it might be. What do you guys think about this? And do you think it's necessary? Do you think it's just trying to increase our, 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 you know, attractability in the job market to have that special niche that no one else has. What do you think about traveling fellowships, not through the societies, but going abroad, spending time, you know, in France or Germany or Australia or wherever you might like to go before starting your actual job. Um, Ryan, let's go right back to you. What are, what are your thoughts on this? Um, obviously, you know, you picked your fellowship, but did you give consideration to two and what do you think about two fellowships? I think it really depends on what the applicant wants to do. I, um, through the process of my residency training, I was always interested in upper extremity. So I considered hand and kind of peripheral nerve surgery for a little while and thought maybe I would want to do kind of a, you know, comprehensive finger to shoulder tip type, um, of experience. But 
some advice I got from one of our hand faculty was that you really, in, in a year of training, you, you can't learn how to do that many different things really well. So I think if somebody is truly wants to be a hand surgeon and an elbow surgeon and a shoulder surgeon, then, then doing two fellowships is probably the way to do it. If you really want to be proficient at all of those things. Um, I think for anybody applying into shoulder who is thinking about a second fellowship because of, I think kind of the old dogma that shoulder jobs are hard to find, or at least, you know, purely shoulder elbow jobs are hard to find. While that may be true to some extent, I think that that is becoming less and less common as more and more places, both academic and private, are realizing the value of truly having a shoulder and elbow fellowship trained person in their practice. So I don't think that people need to feel that they should do another fellowship because they need to have, you know, some other skill set or like, you know, a side gig or other cases that they can do because they're not going to have enough shoulder things to do. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's another year. People talk about potential future income loss, things like that, which may or may have more or less importance to people depending on their financial situation. But um, I think that if, if the reason is to get additional training for the reasons that you want to have a particular type of practice, then it's reasonable, but I don't think it's necessary. And people should definitely think about the ramifications of spending an entire additional year uh, you know, being a fellow or, or doing training. Um, Rachel, is there a second part to that question that I didn't address? No, I I think that's great. Um, let's turn it over to Michael. What do you think? Thoughts on two fellowships, thoughts on those pesky sports fellows like myself who have an interest in shoulder (laughs) and then want to do a second shoulder fellowship or, um, you know, the hand to shoulder, et, et cetera. What are your thoughts here? We're very welcoming these days, Rachel. It's, it's different than it used to be. So, um, you know, Ryan had a good point about had a good point about um, the finances of it. You know, from a purely mathematical standpoint, I would have to imagine it it does not pay itself off to do a second fellowship. But honestly, I would say I would probably ignore that statement because if that's something that's important to you, you're so early in your career that that almost becomes irrelevant, right? It's not math that you're looking at 30 years later when you're looking at it on the front end it, it it will be fine so even though the mathematics may not work out to pay off the loss of income and the you know year later start date i would say ignore that if you want to do a second fellowship go do a second fellowship but i think the time where it makes sense is if you're going to you, you almost have to be in a referral based system for that to work just because you know if you look at any of the subspecialties there's enough sort of bread and butter off the street that really doesn't need surgery that if you're seeing two specialties worth of bread and butter, you can't really dive into, um, you can't really dive into getting more specialized in either one of them, if that makes sense. You know, I think you have to be fed in some, in some sense by a system or by ancillary support each of those specialties to be able to do either one of them at a high level. Otherwise, you're doing both of them at a low level, in which case, what was the point? All right. And Andy, anything to add to that? No, I guess I would just echo, you know, with the exclusion of the folks who are either have a very particular research or kind of academic focus, or they want to work with a very specific patient population, uh, 
in general, I, I think you're going to be so specialized, invaluable to any group as a shoulder elbow surgeon that you don't like, quote unquote, need to further distinguish yourself yourself with um, uh, additional fellowships. All right, I wanted to ask one final question, and it's this is not necessarily on the topic of how you choose a fellowship, but I think it's kind of in the same time period in terms of the people who are listening and what they're thinking about, which is when do you really need to start thinking about your job? Is it desirable to have a job before the match? Is it desirable to have a job before you go to fellowship? Is it most desirable to find your job while you're in fellowship? Now, I, I, I certainly think there are merits to each, and certainly there can be specific situations, but I was hoping you guys could talk through, you know, I think a lot of PGY4s, PGY5s are starting to get anxious, like I need to find a job, I hear finding a job is hard, how am I going to figure out how to get a job? What how, what would what advice would you give to the person who's probably spending a lot of kind of mental cycles trying to figure that out? What do you, what do you think, Andy? You know, a lot of the jobs don't even open up until a year or so in advance of when you'd start, so I, I tell our PGY forwards, don't worry about it. Go through your fellowship application, get all that stuff done. Maybe during PGY five year, you know, middle to end of it, start start thinking about that. But really, end of PGY five and beginning of fellowship is when you should start really putting out the feelers. Um, it's a little bit of a tough thing sometimes because you, you you're starting fellowship and sort of asking almost right away if you know these mentors, like brand new mentors of yours, can can help. Uh, help you find a place, but um, that's just in terms of when jobs open up, generally speaking, is is the right time to do it. What do you think, Mike Amenium? Is that good advice? Wait, wait, wait until fellowship? Should people be starting earlier? Yeah, I think it depends on, you know, I think kind of two different potentially competing interests, right, is, is how much location matters to you, uh, like from a personal perspective, and how much the job matters from you from a professional perspective. If location is very important, and you find a good job in the location, take it, right? Because to find the right job in the right location, that's a that's tunnel vision, right? And so if you find one, take it, even if it's before you start your fellowship. Um, at least that's kind of generally how I, I would say I go about that. Now, if the jobs are more important and you're, and you're very open location-wise in terms of kinds of cities you would live in, parts of the country you would live in, then I would say, you know, wait until fellowship for a couple of reasons. One is that jobs will open up, like, like was already said, you know, closer to your start time, you know, maybe nine, 12 months in, in advance. Plus, your fellowship mentors, in addition to your residency mentors, are additional outlets for you to find, for, for you to find jobs, right? They're going to know about jobs. They're going to be additional sources of reference for you, um, and so if the actual uh, practice is, is is the higher priority of those two things, um, wait into fellowship year, and then you know after a month or two in the fellowship year, you should be really doing some sort of heavy lifting in that regard. You don't you don't want to be starting the process, you know, springtime around now. That that would be a little too late. Now, what do you think, Ryan? I, mean, I know you're still in the thick of it, trying to figure it out, you know, do you, have you had thoughts here about what the right time is? I think that the, the right time is very individualized um, for the reasons that both uh, Mike and Andy said. Uh, it depends on, I think 
Mike's kind of uh, distinguishment between location and, and job is right on point. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's other considerations for each individual person, the type of practice they're going to be in private versus academic. Um, and uh, Andy's point about timing is, is so true too. I mean, there's a lot of it has to do with when things are becoming available and how that overlaps with where you are in your training. Um, I think that having been accepted to a fellowship is a, is a very helpful talking point because it, it, you know, you're on your way and you will be uh, being trained to be a shoulder and elbow surgeon. So that's a, I think a helpful milestone or time point uh, to begin talking to places. Um, But I think that that is a, is a good starting point, but that people don't necessarily need to be stressing about doing it much sooner than that and know that, things will continue to develop and, you know, the further along you get in residency and then into your fellowship, the more mentors you have to, uh, to speak to and things like that. So I think that there's no right, there's no right time that can be used as a blanket statement. Uh, it's very, very dependent on each person and what, what different factors that, uh, Mike and Andy brought up, uh, are kind of at play for them. I want to thank each of you guys for coming on. I mean, this was a wealth of good advice in, in, in a place where I think it can be hard for people who are in this position to get good advice. Certainly, I feel like many of our trainees are kind of hungry for this kind of high quality advice. So I really appreciate it. I think this is going to be incredibly valuable to listeners and hopefully it'll be something people reference for years to come as they reach this point in their professional life. Yeah, I'd like to echo Pete. Thank you all for coming on to the podcast. This is a topic that, you know, 99% of, of shoulder and elbow surgeons Nowadays, they're doing fellowships, you know, um, and and so this is near and dear to all of us. And I would echo Pete. I think that this information is going to be incredibly valuable, not only for our young listeners who are about to go through this process, who are going through this process, but also our more seasoned listeners who are um, recruiting the fellowship applicant and trying to figure out what the fellowship applicant needs to know in 2023 and and what they want out of training moving forward. Because it, it really is, you know, there's a lot of principles that will never change. You want complexity, you want volume, you want good mentorship, you may want some research, you may want, you know, future job opportunities, but the process is changing and education is changing. And, and so this is really a timely topic. That is all the time we have for this podcast. Again, we want to thank our guests so much for coming on. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.